With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's John DeGeese and Ryan Marine. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365 Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine. John DeGee's in Chicago once again joins me on the show. We've got the uh, IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship race, the second in as many weeks at Watkins Glen to recap here on the show this week. Also, a little bit on the Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS Sprint Cup Round. That was held at Misano over the weekend. Plenty of news to get to, especially with uh, the the Peugeot program set to be unveiled uh, tomorrow as we record this. Today, as the podcast is released, so keep an eye on the website for more on that. But plenty of other news to get to here on the show as well, plus looking ahead to what's to come this weekend. But let's start with Watkins Glen, John. And it was, as mentioned, the second time in as many weeks that the WeatherTech Championship was racing in upstate New York. But it had a different feel to it, not just because it was a shorter race distance, but also it seemed like the Cadillacs were a bit stronger. Some of the teams that were strong going back a week were maybe on the back foot for whatever reason here this week and ultimately it was Action Express with its first win in nearly a year. Felipe Nasser and Pipo Durrani teaming up to get the win in a race that was heavily affected by weather. Yeah, like you said, Ryan, I think weather was the big difference this time around. Five days after the Salem six hours of the Glen last the weekend before um, that was running high ambient temperatures um, in the low 90s Fahrenheit, not a drop of, of rain in, in the sky. Um, it really suited the, appeared to, at least appeared to suit the, the, cat, the Acura and Mazdas that time around. Then five days later, you had much cooler conditions in the 60s to 70s. Threat of rain, the, the rain actually did come, and oddly enough, nobody actually switched to wet their tires because of a red flag. Um, that came out for lightning in the area that lasted 45 minutes and um, ultimately shook up the strategy quite a bit. Um, the number 31 Whelan car was already on an alternative strategy. They had pitted on lap 12 um, to basically top off fuel and, and change tires. And knowing that they didn't have the outright pace to the Acuras at the time, um, Pippo Durrani managed to actually take over the lead um, uh, ahead of um, – uh, Ricky Taylor at the time, I believe, while fighting for the, the position. And um, it was really impressive to see that undercut strategy work out for the 31 Action Express. And um, the moment the red flag came out, they sort of were put in the uh, prime position there of needing less fuel in the tank. Um, they ended up coming into the pits with the leaders once the restart happened under yellow, but um, ultimately ended up taking less fuel, got out into the lead, and really just sort of cruised from there. Um, had a late race charge from Ranger van der Zanda in the in the Chip Ganassi racing Cadillac, but um, really wasn't anything to wasn't a huge threat, I think. Um, it looked like Felipe Nasser had things well under control at that point. It is interesting, speaking of the strategy, and, and they were committed to going on an alternate strategy early, and, and the weather certainly played into their hands, but I thought some comments from the team post-race were fascinating about how the red flag, yes, it did benefit them, but it wasn't immediately clear when the red flag was out how it was going to help because they didn't know for how long the red would remain displayed. And keep in mind, the clock continued to run during this red flag. So they were constantly readjusting their calculations 
as the red flag was extended to try and, and stay on top of that strategy, even when no cars were actually running on track. Exactly. And so if the race had restarted earlier, I think they probably would have been caught out more by this um, with the with the with it going back to yellow, I think with like around 50, 54, 55 minutes remaining in the race. And then, then there was a second yellow um, after the first restart for some debris on track. I think that really played into their hands. It was otherwise going to be a, a bit of a stretch to get to the end of the race on fuel, much like we saw at the six hour, which played into the hands of the Mazda and Acura. Um, the, the Cadillacs got a one liter increase in fuel capacity for this weekend, but I, it still didn't really seem to make a big difference in terms of maybe their deficit to the other two DPI manufacturers in terms of fuel mileage or fuel stint length. Um, it's interesting to sort of see that play out, especially over a six hour race and, and IMSA clearly noticed it and, and, and made an adjustment, but a one liter change may not be enough. Um, we'll have to wait and see if there's any other adjustments prior to the next, uh, proto DPI round, um, which will be at road America in over a month's time. But, um, nonetheless, it made for some really entertaining strategist and, and calls there, um, to, to see how, things would play out, and ultimately it, it went into the hands of the 31 crew. What do we make of the fact that it has been nearly a year between wins for Nasser and Durrani when they were paired up initially, that that was hailed as, as a great pairing, and they had immediate success driving together, but this has been a lengthy dry spell, and this wasn't exactly one of those dominant performances that, that we've become accustomed to. This was strategy that put them there. Admittedly, they have the pace, too, but uh, I, I do find it interesting that they've gone through this dry spell. Maybe this is uh, the momentum that they need to get back towards uh, championship contention. Yeah, they're third in the points now, I think about 150 out of the lead, which isn't a whole lot considering the new point system for this year. Um, but it was surprising to me looking back at when their last win was. And, and it was the, the, the basically the makeup race at, at uh, Sebring in July of 2020. So it was almost a full year and you look at some of those races that they could have won in those, that time span in between and I think Petit Lama um, brings out a, a memory there with, with Durrani's battle with Ricky Taylor that ultimately ended up not going their way. Um, there were a couple other races that they could have won. They, they obviously won the qualifying race at Daytona this year but I don't think that really counts for anything. Mm -hmm. It really just means a poll uh, in, in terms of the record books. So um, they've been there. They've been pounding the door I think it's just the level, A, the level of competition has increased dramatically in DPI. Every single team has a chance to win. Um, it was never really like that way in previous years. And, and B, um, perhaps the, the Cadillacs haven't been the favorite car at some of these tracks. And um, as we get into some more tracks in the summer months, I, I think it might balance out a little bit better. Um, we've generally seen that in the past where the Cadillacs come alive later in the year. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens, but um, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how these guys can maybe get back on, track, back on track in terms of the championship. Well, that segues nicely into the last talking point I had about DPI. We talked about how different the conditions were and how that seemed to flip the balance of power, and that brings me back to balance of performance, right? We, we talk about this as if it is a, a, a science, and to some degree it is, but, but I think there is some 
some magic to it as well because there were no major BOP changes between the six hour and then this weekend. The only change was what you talked about earlier, the, the change in fuel capacity for the Cadillac, and yet we saw a completely different pecking order within DPI, and I think it's often easy to complain about balance of performance, and what's lost is just how complicated it is, not just the cars, but the ambient conditions, the differences in tracks, all these different things that that factor into who is strong week in and week out, and I think this serves as a nice reminder running these two races back-to-back, just how difficult it is, because even when nothing was changed effectively from a performance standpoint in BOP, it looked like we had a completely different BOP table based on the times in practice qualifying in the race. Yeah, that's a really good point, and and I think it also sort of shows how close IMSA has gotten Mm -hmm. this BOP with between these cars. We've only seen very minor changes in DPI um, throughout the year since the start of the season, since basically since Sebring, as Daytona has its own balance of performance. And um, nobody's really complained that much about it. Um, talking to some drivers, you know, at Watkins Glen for the six hour, you know, the Cadillac drivers were a little unhappy at the performance of the Acura. But then you look back at some of the previous races before then, and they weren't really, really complaining. So, um, you know, and then we had a Cadillac in victory lane for the sprint race. So, and a one and one too. So, yeah, it, 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 I think this does prove that there's so many different variables at stake when it comes to BOP. And this certainly um, shows that IMSA A has a really tough job in creating a BOP, uh, uh, an equal BOP, uh, equal as possible BOP, and, and B, um, how quickly it could fluctuate just depending on the weather alone. Yeah, really remarkable, I thought, watching the race on Friday. Some of the other classes, LMP2 and LMP3, we saw domination from PR1 Matheson Motorsports and Riley Motorsports, respectively, in those two classes. What did you make of their performances? Yeah, it, it was similar to the six-hour, except the fifty. Except this time, the fifty-two PR1 car was sort of out front in, a, in the league of its own, and that was sort of down to strategy as well. Um, the, the team elected to keep Ben Keating in for two stints um, in the beginning of the race. The minimum drive time was forty-five minutes for the bronze. Uh, silver-rated drivers in the lineup, where the other teams were actually stretching their fuel to get to 45 minutes at the beginning. And um, Ben had a 40-45 second gap before his first pit stop, and they were actually able to overcome that by making an, an additional stop, the PR1 crew, um, before putting Mikkel Jensen in. And um, that ended up being the key of the race. And talking about changes from one week to another, it was simply just a shorter race distance that sort of played strategy out in a different way um, for LMP2. Um, Win Autosport had won the week before um, over PR1, and, and this was sort of a redemption in, in many ways, especially after qualifying. Um, ben was so excited after winning pole uh, in, in, the, in, in the qualifying the day before. Um, he was describing his battle with Stephen Thomas and, and having to eke out that extra margin on his final lap in, in, in the session. And he was so excited. And he ended up actually running over photographer, Brian Cleary and pit lane after the session. Um, luckily Brian was okay, but um, from what we know, but um, 
Yeah, it was uh, a, a real remarkable run for PR1. I guess that was the only uh, thing that didn't go to plan, per, per se, for them over the weekend. And then looking at LMP3, it was just another dominant run by Riley uh, Motorsports with the Felipe Fraga and Gar Robinson car. Um, this was Felipe's third win in a row, and Gar's as well. But remarkably, Felipe still remains undefeated in prototype machinery. So um, really good stuff from them. And a 1-2 finish for the team as well in LMP3. GTLM was diminished, admittedly, uh, for this round. It was a Corvette Racing 1-2 with, once again, Jordan Taylor and Antonio Garcia picking up the win. I do think it was noteworthy, though, that the Proton Run WeatherTech team uh, was able to get back on track with a repaired car after the big fire that they had early on in the Salem six hours less than a week prior. Yeah, I was surprised they actually decided to fix that car, to repair that car instead of going to the backup chassis because um, they hit the, their second car, as far as I know, was ready to go was, you know, was they run both cars in testing simultaneously to sort of see which one works better at certain tracks and whatnot. And so um, they were actually struggling with the primary car earlier in the weekend at the six hour. And um, I thought this was a surefire decision just to go use the other car, but it wasn't. They spent their time um, fixing the car over the over the four day break and uh, got it back out. Ultimately, didn't have the pace to the Corvettes, and I think this is probably something we're going to see more of this year. Um, just based on the fact that this is a privateer team, you know, sure they won Sebring, but that was largely on luck with uh, with the the issues late in the race there between the Corvette and BMW in the battle for the win. So um, I think that you know, unfortunately, this is probably the how. You know, this is what we're going to be seeing seeing in the last few races of the GTLM era. But um, nonetheless, uh, a strong run from the Proton guys to get the car back on track and to get it to the finish. GT Daytona, however, was a fierce battle once again. And Vassar Sullivan, finally, with a breakthrough win. I say finally because it seems like they have been fast seemingly everywhere we've gone and just one thing after another has dropped from the sky to uh, to take them out of contention for a win jack hawksworth and aaron tewitz got the win the sister car frankie montecalvo and zach veach also featured prominently but i think most noteworthy was the fact that jack hawksworth had to deal with some significant damage to the car that caused a great deal of drag during his final stint in the run to the checkered flag and even with that, was still able to run remarkable lap times and, and ultimately secure the victory. Yeah, he said post-race it felt like he was had a parachute out the back of the car, trying the you know with the with the amount of drag that was it was being produced um, with the little damage on the nose of the car. Um, we still don't know exactly what happened there. I think it was st- started with contact when Aaron Tielitz was at the wheel of the number 14 Lexus, but it ultimately came off on the race's second to last restart. That led to a caution for 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 debris from that piece of 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 front bodywork and um jack sort of had to manage that from the for the rest of the race and he explained that you know the handling was was superb it was it wasn't affected in that way it was just a straight line speed luckily he had the sister lexus behind him of uh, zach veach and i i think i don't think there were any forms of team orders but um 
you know, Zach didn't really get anywhere close to, to Jack there in the end, and uh, they managed to pick up a 1-2, which, like you said, Ryan, was huge for the team. This is the first since that's, um, that operations restructuring in the offseason when uh, they used to be part of the AIM uh, autosport operation that had largely run the team. Um, this is now a full Vassar Sullivan effort, and um, yeah, I, I think there were plenty of celebrations in Watkins Glen that evening for, for that team. It was another podium as well for the Heart of Racing team. They've been on a really nice stretch of good results here lately. So that that's one side of the coin. On the other side, uh, the Turner car that had been so strong the previous week had major issues, mechanical issues they had to deal with. But if they were going to have a weekend to struggle, this would have been it, right? Because it was scoring points in GTD only towards the um, WeatherTech Sprint Cup. For Turner, it really doesn't hurt them at all. I think it takes it might take their Sprint Cup title hopes out, out of the window, but I don't think it really means that much to them, at least. Um, in the Sprint Cup standings, the harder racing team of Ross Gunn and Roman DeAngelis lead now um, over the two Lexuses. But, um, yeah, it was, again, one of those strange weekends where you didn't have a full-season championship for GTD. We didn't see some of the cars like Faf or Wright or Magnus, as was the case at Detroit. Um, but it still put on a good fight, a good battle in, in GTD. So that is how uh, the race is played out. You can check out the full recap and everything, as well as post-race reaction up at sportscar365.com, including some notebooks that John had from over the weekend. My last thought on this, and I, I know they kind of had their hands forced in in running back-to-back weekends at Watkins Glen with the cancellation of the Canadian Tire Motorsport Park race, but it it was kind of difficult to get excited for a second race in a row at the same track, and I know uh, several people had bandied about the idea, why not run the short course, something like that. I, I think that could have spiced things up. It sounds like a couple drivers had some comments to that effect, too, that it would have been uh, interesting. I'm not sure if that was good interesting or bad interesting from the driver's perspective, given all the traffic they'd have to deal with. But uh, I do, I would, I guess I would have liked to have seen something a little bit different this time around, just to, to, to change it up from, from the week prior. But hopefully this is not a problem we'll be having again anytime soon. Yeah, I, I was a big proponent of of seeing the short course be in action, especially with less cars this week compared to the six hour. There were only 30 cars on the entry list compared to 38. I think it would have been doable. Um, I don't know if those ever really seriously considered or not, but I, I posed a question to Ricky Taylor and he said, yeah, it would have been great, but it would have been extremely difficult from like a G-force standpoint as um, you're really on it um, going you know, through that um, before on that corner before you um, go into the the boot section of the track. So um, yeah, maybe it just wouldn't wasn't really possible from a from a load standpoint. I, I don't know, but um, that would have definitely shaken things up. But um, I think the weather at least played a different factor in in the race. It wasn't. It to me it didn't feel like two exact races, and I, I, I think that was good. At least we had a different variable there. Yep, that's a good point. Should mention as well, Michelin Pilot Challenge was racing there as well, and Turner did get a good result in GS with Bill Oberlin and Dylan McAvern teaming up for the win. After a penalty to Atlanta Speedworks, uh, they were found to be underweight after the race. Robert Noaker and Ryan Eversley had won on the road, but uh, Road Chagger Racing ultimately got the promotion to P1 with John Morley and Brian Henderson getting the TCR. 
class win. Also racing over the weekend at Misano, uh, the Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe, powered by AWS. It was a Sprint Cup round. Charles Wertz and Dries Van Thor extended their points lead by sweeping the pair of races over the weekend for the WRT team. It was a lights-to-flag win in race one, a little bit more complex in race two because they had Pro-Am and Silver Cup cars that qualified ahead of them that uh, they had to slowly pick their way through, but ultimately did so, benefited to some degree by the the pit stop procedures with the longer minimum times for the uh, Pro-Am class than for the overall Pro class. Nevertheless, a solid run from them. They become... Uh, This weekend, the only crew to win multiple races so far. They've won three going back to the season opener. So a nice strong run for them. And I did mention that uh, there was a Pro-Am car that qualified ahead of them in race two. Johnny Adam took the first ever overall pole for a Pro-Am lineup in Sprint Cup history for race two of the weekend. He and Alexander West teamed up to get the class win as well. In the second race of the weekend, you can find more coverage of that at sportscar365.com as well. Plus, IMSA Prototype Challenge, GT2 European Series, Italian GT. Some of those in standalone reports, others in the weekly racing roundup if you want to get fully caught up on what happened over the weekend. To the news of the week, interesting comments from IMSA President John Doonan on GTD Pro and how the series is approaching team and manufacturer involvement in the class. Uh, They basically sound like they would be just fine if teams and and manufacturers used GTD Pro in 2022 as a bridge to get to LMDH. I think they'd prefer if, if they stuck around and competed in both, but as long as there is... An IMSA outcome, I suppose you could say, for these teams and manufacturers. It sounds like IMSA is, is all all well and good as far as uh, that that uh, particular strategy is concerned. Yeah, I was kind of surprised by John Doonan's comments on that and saying that you know if if there's a manufacturer that steps up from GTD Pro to LMDH, it's not really a net loss in terms of manufacturer OEM participation in the class, in the series. So. Um, they're looking at it from an overall car count standpoint and maybe not necessarily a car count per class standpoint. And on one hand, that might concern me a little bit about the long-term future of GTD Pro. We, we know Corvette Racing is pretty much committed to that class for next year. They haven't announced it yet, but they're planning on being there. And I would think that's probably a long-term deal for that team um, in that class. Um, we were not expecting them to be making an LMDH car to compete against Cadillac by any margin. So I, I think they're for sure stable there. But it's the question of what other manufacturers could be in GTD Pro. Um, we know Lamborghini is um, looking at a GTD Pro program for next year, and they're also looking at an LMDH for maybe 2024. So that would seem like a logical manufacturer that could be following um to use the the platform as a stepping stone for the top prototype class as well as BMW which hasn't formally announced GTD Pro yet but they're planning on doing that as well according to Mike Crack the head of BMW Motorsport and Motorsport so um yeah it's interesting because we have at least two manufacturers there between BMW and Lamborghini that could very well be playing this same game of using the, the class is in the short term and not being there for years and years and years. And that, the only question that I raised that, you know, raises 
red flags for me is like, well, where are you going to find the the participation, say in 2024 or 2025, when those manufacturers are perhaps gone from full factory programs or customer supported factory driver lineup to entries, um, you know, in that category, and and what does it, what does that leave the future of the class? That's a good question. Uh, Corvette, as you said, you would think would be pretty solidified for the foreseeable future. You would think Lexus would probably be in that camp too. I believe they're they're certainly yeah. looking closely at at GTD Pro. And then I just kind of wonder again if manufacturers might take a look at this in in a similar light to to how they use. Uh, SRO Europe and, and use customer teams, but with factory drivers and some factory involvement. So like what we've seen from WRT with Audi and, and there's been Porsche teams doing this over the years. And, and those are a couple of manufacturers, I think, maybe make some sense, maybe something like, like Acura, but we know they'll be in the top class. It is interesting, though, like, I guess that's true for Porsche and Audi, that they'll be in the top class. So, you know, what, what value is there in running a um, a factory GT program as well? It does seem to me, though, that there would be some value for most of these manufacturers just because it is clearly a car that the consumer would recognize more so than a prototype, even with the styling cues we expect for LMDH. And quite frankly, I think as long as you've got six cars, you've got a, a viable class. We've seen that with GTLM over the years. Yeah, and I, I think there's no question that we'll have at least that number for next year, you know, factoring in the, the two BMWs, two Corvettes, and then... I would say probably two Lamborghinis potentially. Um, there's talk of the WeatherTech Porsche coming in as well, and then the Lexuses. So you could end up with 10 cars, almost nine, 10 cars, which I think would be a, a very good grid for mm-hmm. GTD Pro. And it, that doesn't necessarily take away that much from GTD AM or whatever it'll be. I think I think they're going to keep it as GTD, which personally I, I rather have it be Pro and AM, kind of like how the WEC does it yeah. in nomenclature. But um, that's just another story for another day. <laughs> um, the point being is that I think we still have a lot of interest in GTD for next year as well. Some new teams coming in. We saw the debut of a new Mercedes AMG um, operation with Guy Cosmo and Shane Lewis this past weekend. So I think there's certainly room for growth. And I think in the short term, I think IMSA's in a good place. I'm just sort of worried, you know, come 2024, 2025, where every manufacturer wants to be an LMDH and potentially will be there. What's left in the GTD, what's left in the GT ranks. And I quite frankly, I think this is a situation the ACO is going to be facing as well. Um, should they go with GT3 as well um, in, in their top uh, production based categories? It's going to be interesting to watch. And it just shows how interconnected all of this stuff is changes in prototype racing have a direct effect on what goes on in GT racing more often than not. So really, really interesting. Uh, some news from the SRO confirming what we already anticipated, that there will be spectator access for the Total Energies 24 Hours of Spa, as it is now known, that will be going on at the end of this month. Now, the full details are still to be announced. We expect those next week when tickets go on sale. But this is very good news because we know, uh, Stefan Rattel had said previously, if the race was going to be forced to run without fans for a second straight year, that would have been a financial hardship for the event. Uh, so this is a nice step in the right direction. It's a sign of normalcy returning. Now, the degree of normal, I think, is still TBD right now, but overall, very positive news that there will at least be some spectator access for Spa. 
Absolutely. And like you said, we're still awaiting details on that. And I think a lot of that depends on the worsening COVID situation over in Europe. The caseloads have been increasing in some countries in recent weeks um, due to the Delta variant. So um, I think that's why SRO is sort of waiting until the last possible moment to sort of declare uh, what the numbers will be. Um, You don't want to all of a sudden put out a number and then have to retract on that. And that's something, quite frankly, I'm a little concerned about with the ACO with the 24 Hours of Loma. They've said, I think, 50,000 fans, and that might end up being a little too much for the current health situation in Europe. But um, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I don't want to be a doomsdayer with, with any of this right now, but um, certainly there's a lot of challenges going on still in Europe as um, the the variants are, are taking hold in certain countries. So, um, But nonetheless, good news that SRO is definitely planning on at least having some fans for the, the 24-hour race. I also unveiled the poster for the race, and it's a sharp-looking poster. You can check that out in our story concerning the uh, spectator access for Spa up at sportscar365.com. Out of a similar vein uh, in terms of a return to normalcy, the Gulf 12 Hours, it has been announced by organizers, will be back in Abu Dhabi on a uh, newly reconfigured uh, configuration of the track for its 10th edition, and that's a return home after that race was forced to be held in Bahrain on the Bahrain International Circuit last year. Yeah, that'll be good to see. And I think it's the week before the the um, Dubai 24 hours. So I think that works out well for teams wanting to do both races. Um, logistically, um, makes a lot of sense. And I think the Curventec organizers have a race of their own at the Yas Marina circuit the week after Dubai. So um, for any team wanting to do some racing in the Middle East in the winter time, I think that's going to be a really good opportunity for, for GT3, GT4 and the likes to, to be to be out in action in, in the nice sunny weather in January. It's proven to be a very popular option in recent years. The date has been confirmed as well for January 8th. 34 grid places available for the Gulf 12 Hours, open to GT3, GT4, and Lamborghini Super Trofeo cars. Uh, so that's uh, exciting stuff for the winter time. Uh, some other news. ARC Bratislava has announced its intentions to switch from the Leger chassis that it has been campaigning in the World Endurance Championship to an Orica LMP2 chassis. Um, basically citing a desire to be more competitive. And, and this goes back, I think, maybe a little bit to what we talked about last week, the, the to- comments from Max Angelelli about the need to get next the next generation of LMP2 regulations correct to have a more equitable playing field between the four LMP2 constructors because this is just yet another domino in this trend that we've seen of Liget and Delara teams abandoning those cars to go to Orica because, simply put, Orica is the package you have to have if you want to have a chance to compete. Yeah, this is really unfortunate as right now there's no active Delara's racing in the European or at the Le Mans 24 hours. And then I think now we're down to only one Liget for the 24 hour, which is crazy then considering the rest of the field is Orica. Um, yeah, not much more to say about it. Um, I just I think 2024 can't come soon mm-hmm. enough in, in terms of these new regulations that are being planned for LMP2. And hopefully, as Max has alluded to in, in, in our interview in the past, that there could be a way to, 
to balance these cars out and prevent something like this happening again because it's really gone down a, a, a really disappointing road, I, I would have to say. Yep, I agree, especially when you go back to what LMP2 looked like before this current set of regulations and you had so much diversity, different chassis with different engine combinations. I mean, that that went away with this set of regs and the spec Gibson engine, which has performed admirably. And, you know, you really can't fault them for that. But, you know, you you definitely miss the different soundtrack that you had before. And also, it was always interesting to see who would show up with what configuration of car and engine and all of that is gone. And, and now it's it's down to just the Orica. The good news is the Orica is a very good car. The car counts have been good. The racing has generally been very good. But I think all of us who like sports car racing like the diversity of it, and and that's uh, that's been gone from several for several years now, and it's really gone after this bit of news, which again will start at Le Mans. So I think there's still one more round left for ARC Bratislava and its Liger, but uh, and after that, it's headed towards the Orica route. It would appear. Final topic for major discussion here, John, is the HPD GT3 Driver Academy is set to go for its second year. It was a really successful initiative that started one year ago, and the new drivers named to this year's crop, Nikki Hayes, Ashton Harrison, Kiffin Simpson, and Kat Lauren, will be testing the uh, Acura NSX GT3 Evo with Racer's Edge at a number of tracks this year, getting some coaching and, and a lot of help behind the scenes to help prepare them take the next step in their racing careers it's been really cool to see the graduates doing so well in sro america this year and and imsa as well for that matter from the first year and, and it sounds like there's a lot of momentum behind this program yeah i spoke to lee niffenager from hpd about this and he's very excited about this season too it's been delayed a little bit due to some track rental um uh challenges but it does it will be kicking off in mid ohio on july 13th and 14th um, with the four drivers you mentioned, um, um, two of them are up and coming from the open wheel ranks. Uh, the others have more sports car experience, including Ashton Harrison, who races um, in Lamborghini Super Trofeo with Wayne Taylor Racing. So it's kind of interesting to see her um, take on the, the sister operation, per se, you know, the, the links with Acura, with Wayne Taylor Racing there. Um, see how she's going to perform in the uh, NSX GT3 Evo. And she's getting um, mentored by Ricky Taylor, who's actually one of the coaches in part of this program. So it all sort of blends in nicely on, on that side of things. Um, but in addition to Mid-Ohio, um, this, this program will be going to Indianapolis, um, VIR, and um, Sebring for uh, this uh, four-weekend, four-event four program that sort of helps get the drivers up to speed and, and see where they want to go you know, career-wise in the future. Um, Lee basically said that you know, it's not a – doesn't lead to a definitive seats in – race cars for next year it depends on if the drivers want to do it but we saw all four of the graduates last year um end up in an, either nsx gt3 evos or honda civic tcr cars so um, certainly it, it helps i think being part of this program to, to sort of help get, get you placed in a, uh, an hpd endorsed program one way or another it's great to see another manufacturer embracing something like this, so we'll keep an eye on that as it develops. And as mentioned earlier, as you're hearing this, either today or in previous days, depending on when you're listening, 
the Peugeot launch of its new LMH car will have occurred. So uh, obviously it hasn't happened yet as we record this, so we can't really speak too much about it, but there'll be a lot of coverage, I can promise you, up at sportscar365.com once that news is official, and uh, we'll have a whole lot more to say about it on next week's show. And also, for those of you looking for a bit more direction about where Porsche might be headed with its LMDH drivers when that program comes online. John, in the most recent uh, subscription newsletter, you were able to lay out a few hints as to the future, just uh, one of the many things that are offered in these newsletters that uh, got started earlier this year. Yeah, it's uh, it's a new offering to our site, kind of a premium side of, of content, and this is something we're trying to build over the you know next few months, and and having more insightful content like this, more predictive, um, um, behind the scenes opinion pieces at times over what what goes on in the world of sports car racing, and we had one sort of outlining the the current state of LMDH a few weeks ago. Now um, there's one that was published Monday morning, pr- sort of predicting Porsche's LMDH driver lineup. Um, it's it's purely speculative at this point. Porsche has not come out and announced any drivers, but considering the, the, the current crop of factory aces that are currently employed by them and as well as some other performers in, in non-Porsche machinery, um, we sort of put our heads together, um, myself and Dan Lloyd and others in the team, to sort of figure out what who could be on the Porsche's radar screen there um, heading and heading into 2023. So it's a definite interesting read. If you're one of those people that likes, likes to hear about potential entries or rumors or gossip and, and whatnot. So um, check it out. If you can, you could always subscribe to the, to the newsletter at a, um, right now we're offering a 20% discount for a, a yearly subscription. So that brings it down to $24 a year. Um, it'll be, we aim to get, you know, one or two of these features out per month, uh, as well as other recaps and breaking news and, and links to the site as well. So it's, um, it helps us keep things in operation, especially during these challenging times, um, with the, the pandemic and, and, and whatnot and, in, uh, in the media publishing world has been taking its hit as well through, um, the changes going on in the world. So any little bit helps us a lot and, um, we appreciate your support as always. Certainly. So it was a very interesting read, Dan and John connecting some of the dots, uh, as to the direction this might be headed and, uh, good insider content for sure for you to check out. Let's wrap up the show by looking ahead to the weekend, and it is actually relatively busy, especially on the GT racing front, but we have ELMS racing at Monza this weekend, 44 cars on the entry list, including additional LMP2 entries from Racing Team Nederland, Real Team Racing, and Jota. But uh, on the GT front, ADAC GT Masters is in action at Zandvoort, the NOS has rounds five and six of its championship, uh, British GT racing at Donington, plus International GT Open at the Hungaro Ring. So a whole lot to keep tabs on, and we'll do our best to do that for you up at sportscar365.com throughout the weekend. That's it for us this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you have a moment to spare, we love a rating and a review on iTunes. It really does help us out quite a bit. And uh, also, if you have questions or comments for a future show, you can leave them for us using the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or in the comment section from this week's podcast up at the website. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stint. 